Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a cool episode for you guys today. A little bit of a swerve from the Porsche stuff that we, you know, I know we talk about Porsche stuff a lot, but I want to talk about Ferraris a little bit, vintage Ferraris. And uh, an individual I met out at Daytona, Kevin Caulfield, is coming in to talk to us about Ferrari. And he works for Motion Products, which is one of the most recognized Concours restoration shops in the world. Wow. In the world. And it's right in Wisconsin, in, uh, wow. in Nisswa, Wisconsin. They have like a 75,000 square foot restoration facility where they do pebble beach level, like pin level yeah, restorations. restorations. So we're going to talk wow. about what it takes to restore some stuff to to that level. What does it take to do that? What does yeah. it take? He's he's going on the Milli Miglia and his Ferrari, his vintage Ferrari. What does it take to, you know, how do you, what do you, how do you get ready for that? Right. You know, what, what's the story? So we're going to talk a little bit about all that stuff. Um, but before we get into that, I had a question for you. And this is the opposite of Ferrari talk. But I was driving behind you today. Uh-oh. And <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And the back of your truck says Hummer. Yeah. And what does Hummer come from? The Humvee. Okay. What other car is called its own nickname because there's no like BMW Beamer. There's no Subaru Subi. There's no V-Dub. You don't see like the V-Dub Golf That'd out there. That'd be kind of cool. Is, like you're the, it's the only manufacturer that is called, uh, it's its own nickname. Right. How cocky is that? <laughs> that you <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, it's funny because that's even a nickname. Humvee is also that's a like nickname. That's like putting your nickname on, the, on, the, on your birth certificate. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, you're yeah, the, yeah. like if someone was going to call you the Jakester, that would be your official name. <laughs> they just throw your regular Jake's name day. out the window and just I don't. Well, what's funny is Humvee is even a nickname because it's an acronym or a colloquial for High Mobility Multipurpose Wheeled Vehicle or HMMWV. So you have a acronym. So the name, then the acronym, then a nickname of the acronym, and then a nickname of the nickname of the acronym for the name. <laughs> Is th there is no other manufacturer that does this, is there? Nope. And currently there isn't one anyway. because No, nope, because that does not <laughs> exist anymore. Apparently it wasn't a good idea to name your truck after a sexual activity. <laughs> 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 All right. On that note, why don't you tell us a little bit about Worth? Yes, let's talk about Worth. They are a family-owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. They offer high-quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with industry-leading customer service. They've also just launched their world-class hand tool lines to the U.S. market. So you, These are German-made tools with a lifetime warranty. You can head over to worthusa.com to check out all of their products. And Chris, as you alluded to before, this is professional-grade stuff. It's when you go into any auto shop... And we're you not see, talking professional grade like GMC is actually <laughs> just a regular truck, but it's got a shinier badge on it. This is right. actually professional grade. No, it's like instead of going to, you know, AutoZone and buying people, a can of brake how do, cleaner. How do people fall for it with, with GMC? Professional grade. It's, it's the same thing. The plastic looks different, right? It's basically the same. Well, GMC has usually been like if you're going to buy a work truck, you buy the GMC instead of the Silverado. The GMC costs more. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't bought one. It costs more, and it's the same thing. It truly is. Anyway, sorry, sorry to ruin your thing. No, that's about it. So this really is professional grade. Yeah, it's good stuff. So um, let's get to our interview with Kevin. He's going to be into the studio here in a minute. As soon as he's here, we'll let you know, and we'll get right to it.
right. We are back with Kevin Caulfield. Thanks for coming in, man. It's our pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here. It was uh, it was great meeting you on a cold, rainy, dreary evening in <laughs> Daytona. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great place to be, though. Over, uh, what, 175 entries, 300 drivers, six run groups. It was absolutely phenomenal. It was actually my first time at Daytona. I'd never been there before. Oh, sensational. So I arrived mm. at night, mm. and I walk up, and I see all the lights, and you walk in. It's almost like you're walking into the World Series or something. Uh, With what, all those lights, it was just incredible. Yes. In fact, my first visit, similar, arrived at nighttime, and it was for the Ferrari Finale Mondiale. And uh, I want to say 2016, it was just spectacular. They had every light turned on. And the magnificence of that place and just the size, it's just unbelievable. What's really wild is eventually I went out with a friend in his Ferrari FXXK, which <laughs> is seven speeds forward, a thousand horsepower, electronic aerodynamics. You're in a fire suit, a full face helmet, six point harness. In fact, the uh, Ferrari F1 mechanics are on a busman's holiday. So when you get in, they help you, and then they say, okay, wow. Kevin, take a deep breath, and then they <laughs> yank your belts as hard as possible. <clears throat> well, there's also an intercom system, so we were out there, and I said, and as we were going into turn two, I said, Chris, I should probably be quiet, shouldn't I? And he's like, no, no, that's okay, we can talk. Well, we're going around the banking at 200 miles an hour, wow. and it felt effortless. And Chris, brilliant driver, spends a lot of time in the Ferrari Cliente program, races at the Nürburgring and at Glickenhaus, and uh, really accomplished, great guy. Anyway, I was just marveling at this, how quick, and there wasn't this huge sensation of speed. And it was funny, <clears throat> I think three weeks earlier, I'd taken Chris out for a ride in my old racing Ferrari that was about 70 years old. And we were working really, really hard on 100 miles an hour. And I was like, God, it's amazing the progress that's been made. Which one felt better? Which did you? Uh... <laughs> Which caused the most enjoyment? Um, well, having a dog in the fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they're both a marvel. Yeah. I mean, the it two is truly 12s. amazing seeing where things came from. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it is the progression of it, and seeing that you know that's one of the things that makes um, the last generation of what I consider the last generation of cool cars is things that came out in the last few years. Um, everything after here, it seems like it's kind of going downhill, but everything now stands on the shoulders of everything that came before it. I mean, that car that you rode in stands on the shoulders of your old 212. Exactly. I, that history, that heritage, you know, that blood and sweat right. over years of, you know, passing the information on and on and on is that DNA is still in that car. And that's really cool. I think that's something that's fading away as time goes on here, but it's cool to see that it's still there. Well, and that's part of, uh, for our celebration this year, it's the 90th anniversary of the Scuderia Ferrari. And Ferrari started with Alfa Romeo. And they were responsible for the factory works team. Hmm. So it was, you really go back to that and you look at what Ferrari learned so early on. And when the Ferrari company was formed in 1947 to start building Ferrari racing cars, what they accomplished in their first five years of existence is truly remarkable because they won Every major road race, the Mia Amelia, Spa. And who were they racing against at the time? <clears throat> They're racing against um, the last of the Bugattis. There were Maseratis out there. There were um, the Alfa Romeos. Um, was Porsche Audi, was, was in its infancy. Audi? Was Audi Auto Union? Were they racing at the no, time? They uh, were dormant at that point. Okay. That, mm. that stopped with World War II. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but the Talbot... 
several other French cars, Bugattis. And those early races, some of the pre-war cars were drawn out because, again, you're in a, it's two years after World War II. And how do you pull all this together? <clears throat> but what's fascinating, though, is here's um, this company. It's just in the space of five years, they won Le Mans, the most prestigious endurance race in the world. They won the Mimelia, the most dangerous and prestigious road race in the world. They won the Grand Prix Drivers' Championship with uh, Alberto Ascari. And they did this all in the first five years of existence. And you think of any business, any professional sports team, who else has had that sort of success that quickly out of the blocks? And what did it mean for uh, <clears throat> Italy at the time? I mean, post-war Italy, you know, everybody's still kind of probably reeling a little bit. Having that, mm -hmm. having that brand and that manufacturer come and do that was a big deal for them. You know, it is. And when we were in Italy this September for the celebration tour of the touring body Ferraris, in celebration of Ferrari's 70th anniversary of their win at Le Mans, Spa, and the Mimelia, the people on the street, they could see those are their national treasures. And to see them not dormant in a museum, but rolling down the street, they're like, wow. And they took them away from the drudgery of day-to-day -day and put a smile on their face. And that was moving to see. In fact, so much so, I left my car in Italy and uh, at the National Italian Automotive Museum in Torino. <clears throat> and uh, now it's uh, moved on and it's in Modena at the uh, Museo Enzo Ferrari on display. So Ferrari obviously is is something that's in your blood. Why don't you tell me a little bit about <clears throat> why? Maybe start with telling us about your father a little bit. Exactly. My father, um, he enjoyed the Ferraris and right away early on f figured out, I can work on this car myself because he was a hands-on guy. He wasn't, let's take it to the Ferrari store because there weren't any Ferrari stores then. So you had to be somewhat resourceful. He befriended one of the foremost Ferrari racing mechanics in the U.S., Hal Ulrich. And he, he was very respectful. He said, look, I'll pay you your hourly rate, but I'd like to speak with you about how do I rebuild the engine on my racing Ferrari? and Where do I get the bits and pieces and so forth? So he actually rebuilt the engines himself, looked after them, and had a great time. Vintage race them to some degree. Now, when you talk about rebuilding an engine as a guy <clears> that hasn't rebuilt one of them before, we all look at, you know, whether a Porsche engine or Ferrari engine or whatever, we're like, oh, my God, and we put it on this huge pedestal, like, oh, only one guy in the world can rebuild this stuff. Is it like that, or is it kind of that it's only revered like that now because where we are? But back then, was it just something that, you know, I'll just rebuild this, this is what needs to be done? Well, I think part of it is it's, it was a different era, this is over 50 years ago, and you think that was part of the, the remnants of the greatest generation, very self-reliant and um, resourceful, and you'd think the situation through, okay, how do we resolve this? And not everybody could do this, not to, to make light of it, but if you had the, um, the, the aptitude, the nature, and you've worked on other engines up to this point, so... Yeah, it's not a V8 or a straightforward. There's 12 cylinders here. So just mm -hmm. the timing alone, like, oh, and there's three dual-throat Webers in this instance. So That's what I think about is sinking out? the carburetors <laughs> and the throttle linkages and everything. Well, that's what makes my head spin. Yeah, that's where the unison comes into play. Yeah. And it takes time and a good fan to keep things cooling because these are racing cars. So there's no automatic fan that's going to turn on. and coop the So my job as a youngster was, okay, when that temperature, water temperature gauge reaches out, little red dot you have to tell me right away and then the fan would drop the hood would go down and off we'd go for a 20 minute blast to cool the car down and then 
back into the garage. And we lived in the country at the time on the East Coast. And it, it was really entertaining. I, I, <laughs> I, I, the idea of playing baseball, just, I don't have time for this. The Ferraris are too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you're basically sitting in the car with your eyeballs glued to that water temperature gauge being like, all right, in 20 degrees, we get to go for a drive. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yes. <laughs> so he actually was really involved in the Ferrari club when he was driving these cars around. How did that? You, you That's said correct. Was- <clears throat> uh, the f- Again, the, the importer of Ferraris on the East Coast was Luigi Canetti, a three-time Le Mans winner, the man who delivered Ferrari their first Le Mans victory in 1949, and their most recent in 1965 as an entrant with Jochen Rint and the American Aston Gregory. Well, he would import the cars, and that was, you'd either go to Luigi Canetti to get parts or back to the factory, and hmm. there was no internet, um, there was... It was a long, arduous process to do that. Well, anyway, my dad's idea at the time was <clears throat> somewhat, he took the idea from the Bugatti Club in England, like, okay, let's have a, a library of parts, if you will. So his contribution, um, he was on the East Coast in New York City on a vi- business visit, and he happened to stop by Alfred Momo. Now, Alfred Momo was the chief mechanic for Briggs Cunningham, and he had the Momo Corporation. Well, Briggs Cunningham was the first importer for the Ferraris, but when uh, he started to improve upon Mr. Ferrari's ideas and designs, such as water-cooled brakes on the 375, Mr. Ferrari just said, no, that's enough, took the distributorship away and said, okay, Canetti, get over there and get it together, because it was Luigi Canetti who said, you know, Mr. Ferrari, you want to race cars, that's all you want to do. But these Americans, they'll buy the old race cars, and we can probably sell them street cars if you make street cars because they'll think they're really cool. And if you look at some of the early GT Ferraris, it's very interesting how the Italians interpreted the taste of the Americans and what they'd like to acquire. And not to let the cat out of the bag, but some, just Google that sometime like Ghia or Vignali. And GT so- Ferrari. It sounds like Ferrari's the one that invented race on Sunday, sell on Monday then. <laughs> <laughs> Inadvertently by accident. He just wanted to go racing in the worst way. So what is your, when you look back at your memories with your dad, what is one that really sticks out with you when it comes to driving with him? You know, several come to mind. Um, being a youngster in these cars, the roads, they used to, um, we'd be on two-lane roads on Saturday morning, and the roads would be, they'd go, up and down, hill and dale. And the suspension on the Ferraris, mind you, a racing car, you'd go into some of these, over these hills and down into the compression, and when you'd come up, I'd literally lift off the seat. My dad would put his <laughs> hand on my lap, and he was like, God, if you fall out of here, your mother is going to have my hide. <laughs> so I was like, okay, Dad. And then shortly thereafter, we put in four-point harnesses, which uh, so we st- Kevin stayed in the car. Probably a probably a good idea. So your your grandma did some racing too, right? Yes. Growing up, my grandmother she used to comment on the vanadium steel of the axles of the forts and how special that was. And then she talked about racing around a quarter-mile track in a Model T Ford. She had this phenomenal speed she was talking about. It's like, that couldn't be. I mean, she's something, something like 75 or 80 miles an hour. And it's like, that's something. Well, then we were cleaning out my dad's attic. And oh, lo and behold, here's a photograph of Grandma Tilly in her Model T Ford in the ladies' race in northern Minnesota. Huh. There was also a news clipping to that effect. And I was like, 
oh, I guess grandma did race cars. <clears throat> <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about your first Ferrari. What is What was your first car? Well, my first Ferrari, it was a very interesting experience. Um, 55 years ago, my dad and I, we drove to New Orleans to collect the second Ferrari, a racing Ferrari, a 212 Le Mans Berlinetta. It was the second of three cars. It raced in the 1952 Mia Emilia and uh, the, the Tour of Sicily, raced at Monza. Well, in 1955, a man named Jim Carson imported the car here to the U.S., and uh, it was phenomenal. Between 55 and 1964, when my dad acquired it, the Ferrari engine had worn out, couldn't get parts conveniently. So um, this man, who was a naval aviator, he was friends with Zora Duntoff, the father of the Corvette. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what did they do? Here, <laughs> we've got a prototype fuel-injected Corvette engine. Let's put that in the Ferrari. <laughs> I wonder how many beers in that idea was. <laughs> I don't know, but they started at one end, went to the other, and uh, it was like, whoa. Well, then this Navy aviator, he raced the car with the Corvette engine in it. He wound up in New Orleans at the Naval Aviation Air Base there, and then he was thinking about restoring it, but like so many of these restoration products, people don't realize how much is entailed in terms of effort and cost. Well, anyway, he... Um, he got wet feet, cold feet, I should say, and in steps my dad. Well, my dad had already learned uh, through another fellow in the Ferrari Club, one of the founders as well, that uh, the original engine and gearbox happened to be in Detroit. So wow. my dad acquired the car with the understanding that we'd, he would have the original engine and gearbox and repatriate those. Wow. It's good someone tucked that away. I actually tried to find the engine for my car. I tried. My car's had so many owners now, my 911. Mm-hmm. I called one guy, and I called it. Who? Okay, who'd you get it from? Who'd you get it from? And then after a while, they're like, ah, I don't know. I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> you, you reach this point where all of a sudden, this guy owned the car 20 years ago, and somebody's dead, and then it's just a dead end, and you can't find it. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. would be, be really your luck. That's cool that the engine was still around. Yeah, so that was a big deal. And Actually, my father was responsible for the four instances where the original engines were repatriated with the original chassis. And wow, that's kind of gratifying. It's satisfying. It's gratifying to put a piece, a treasure like that back right. With um, these other instances of, you know, at some point along the line, I assume they're not all swapped out for Chevrolet fuel-injected Corvette <coughs> motors. So is it an instance where, you know, a lot of times with our old Porsches too, you know, the engine will just need a rebuild, and rather than taking the time to rebuild it, you just put a new engine in, a different one? What what really led to these being separated? Oh, that's a really good question. And it, again, it, you have to put yourself back in time, 50 years, and realize, okay, I can't call Amazon and get a set of Ferrari heads. Hmm. Um, I've got to call either Kinetti or else the factory and Marinello. And it was like, oh, after a point, you just say, enough of this. Let's put the American V8, whether it's Ford or Ferrari, because it's reliable. We're done. We can get parts and we can keep racing. And again, it was a different era back then. However, these same people that did this, they didn't throw that stuff out. They set it underneath the workbench, and it was there waiting. And there was about a 10-year lag, if you will. And then all of a sudden, it was like the cars he could actually drive on the street. They're like, okay, let's, get, let's repatriate that engine. And then the more esoterics like the Monza and the Mondial, those weren't very easy to, to drive on the street because the clutch is in or out. But then the vintage racing started to come on the scene. And it was like, oh, now we have a place to run these. And it, it was a huge game changer. When the, the Mia Emilia was reinvigorated, 
that brought so many cars out of the woodwork and it developed the restoration industry like we've never seen before. And they're casting blocks, cutting gears, valves. You can get a replica Ferrari engine to protect against loss of value. You can get a replica Alfa Romeo 8C engine. And think about this. There are only 188 8C Alfa Romeos built, and yet there's a market for these engines. Wow. Right. Well, <laughs> when an engine costs $300,000 or whatever an engine costs for something like this, because there are none, I mean, that's where the market comes from, right? Some guy doesn't want to put any miles on his original one, so he'll buy one of these to run the car. Yes, essentially the concept, you're protecting against loss of value because you're dealing with multi-million dollar cars. And there's a good example right now. There's a Ferrari short wheelbase Berlinetta. It has the correct type engine in it, but it's not the engine it left the factory with. And it impacts the value significantly. How much are we talking for a value impact on something like that when the original engine is gone? uh, Well, um, the authorities in the Ferrari are going to say 20%. Okay. So all of a sudden... Your $12 million CFAC hot rod that doesn't have the original CFAC Ferrari hot rod engine in it, it's like, uh-oh, that's $2.4 million that's missing. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. So you're heading, <laughs> you're heading to the Millie Megley on your Ferrari 212. Um, at Motion Products, what has to be done to prep an old Ferrari for something like that event? What do you guys do over there to make that car ready for that? Because it's even though it's not like it was, it's still a pretty hard task for an old car. Right. Well, I think one of the keys for these cars is to get them out and exercise them on a regular basis. You don't have to pound them. In fact, you don't want to pound them. But you want to get everything up to temperature. Go for a drive for an hour out in the country where you get to use the brakes, steer the car. The suspension gets flexed and all that. And in the process... Uh, personally, I keep a logbook, and I say, oh, that noise wasn't there before. What's that all about? Hmm. And by being proactive with this, you're on top of the condition of the car. So when it does come time to do an event like the Mia Amelia, I'm um, aware of the fact that, okay, something could break because these are old bits of metal, but at the same time, I go into it with a fair degree of confidence that, okay, we're going to get to the other end in good shape. Um, something could happen, but this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be over some incredible roads, some very interesting people, and it's back where the car raced in the day. So, so, so how do you get the car in the event? Is it invite only, or do you apply to be in it, or how does that happen? You apply to be in it. And how many people apply? It's got to be just an outrageous amount of people that apply to get in. It is. It is. There's probably a multiple, I'd speculate, of four or five times the available spaces. So what does the event organizer do? They look for provenance. So if you're in the first cut, if your car raced in the Mimelia, then they want you there Hmm. in the worst way. If your car was the type that raced in the day, then, okay, we'll take a look at that car. And um, if it had some special race history, say it won at Spa or it was raced by Kennedy or something of that nature, um, and I keep referring back to the Ferrari, but there were BMWs raced in the day, the Porsches that were raced in the day, the 550s, the 356s. That's, that'll catch their eye. Um, and if it's, it's um, so if Racing Pro announced, did, you race in the, did the car race in the first place in the event? And then after that, it's like, oh, yeah, Jaguar XK120. Yeah, those raced in the Mia Amelia. You have one? Yeah. Yeah, we need a we need a f- ten more cars to fill the grid out. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> so what 
you know, I just kind of slightly off topic, but when you talk about, you know, the provenance of the Ferraris and when they raced and when they were winning and winning, winning really well, what happened that they just don't seem to win anymore? You know, as time went on, they just didn't seem to win like they used to. Is there anything that can be ascribed to, or is that kind of like a loaded question? Or oh, that's a great GT40? question, <laughs> and, and it's timely. Did Ford and I think, happen? Is that, I mean, <laughs> well, that's part of the answer. Ford versus Ferrari. Mm-hmm. You look at that, and yeah, Ferrari. In the day, they were racing Formula One, which they still race. They were racing the endurance racers. Um, they had the legendary Ferrari GTO to win the GT class. Um, in addition to the Formula 1s, they were racing Formula 2 cars. There was a European Hill Climb Championship. They had cars specially developed for that. Wow. And then they looked after the, the customer cars. So they were spread pretty thin. And 72... And Fiat didn't help them? Like they said they would? or I mean, because they got bought by Fiat, right? Well, that was in... Gosh, what was that? 69? 70? Exactly. Very good. Um, Fiat was the white knight. They... They'd been laying in the weeds waiting for the day that Enzo was like, okay, so Fiat wound up with 90% of Ferrari. Ferrari kept 10%, which is um, San Piero now owns. But Ferrari, most importantly, had control of the racing department, which is what he wanted to do more than anything. So Fiat let him run Formula One in 70, 71, 72. And then 72, they were also running the 312 PB Sports Racer, which was a Grand Prix car with fenders. And they won the world championship. They were racing at Le Mans. And at the end of 72, I want to say 72, 73, right around there, um, Daniele, the chairman of Fiat, said, you know, we're going to rein you in. (laughs) Which do you want, sports cars or Formula One cars? He said, Formula One. I said, okay, that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then um, Giampiero Moretti Momo, he begged with Ferrari for years. And eventually they put together the Triple Three SP that was a spectacular racing car. Beautiful car. Yeah, sequential gearbox, um, aero, Venturis, all that sort of stuff. 41 examples exist, all accounted for. Um, Great cars. Well, anyways, they went back to Le Mans, but they still didn't win Le Mans. But anyway, it's almost, the, like, it's almost like when I decide I'm going to work out, I go out to the gym, I work out <laughs> and I get myself into a little bit of shape. And then Christmas comes along, Thanksgiving comes <laughs> along and you try to get back out in January and you just can't do what you used to do. <laughs> you just can't seem to get out of bed. I mean, it's, I guess you just maybe you just lose it. All those guys, there's maybe a separation. There's different people working. Mm-hmm. You know, if the continuity would have been there, there'd probably be a different story you well, know, if they would have kept at it. At Moro Forgari, their designer was there for years and years, and he was brilliant and did a great job. But I think it was the expense and the cost of racing. I mean, you, you look at Ford versus Ferrari, and what Ford accomplished in four years was phenomenal. To beat the world champions in just four years' time, Toyota was battling away for over 30 years trying to do that. And they finally won Le Mans last year with no opposition. Yeah, isn't that sad? <laughs> but so, I mean. In the day, Ford spent $7 million to win Le Mans the first time. Then they won three more years in a row, and then that was it. There was said, nothing left to we prove. We did what we needed to do. We're yeah. out of here. Mission accomplished. Ferrari's in the ground, so then um, Agnelli comes to the rescue. Um, and the other aspect, you were asking me earlier about why aren't there so racing few racing Ferraris out there in the first place? And the answer to your question is um, between 1947 when Ferrari came to inception and 72, there were only not even 600 racing Ferraris built. That's how few the number it is. And Ferrari, the race cars 
typically had an even number chassis number like 0106E or 0290MM. Um, and the odd numbered cars were like 3223GT, which is the first GTO. That's a racing car. So there's always an exception to the rule. But the short wheelbase Berlinettas that people remember are the 250 GTO, which is legendary. Those cars um, happen to have odd chassis numbers. But even when you add those into the equation, you're dealing with less, a universe of fewer than a thousand cars. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, I asked, when I asked, we were at Daytona, I said, there's, it's all Porsches. There's not a single Ferrari here. I think there, maybe there was a newer one, you know, which doesn't really count in terms of this conversation. <laughs> I mean, they count, but not in, the, in terms of the realm of this conversation right. we're having. Where does, I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to experience it. I want to experience the sound. I want to see these cars. What can we do, which is probably nothing, but what can we do to get these guys out to and bring these cars to some of these, some of these less prestigious events where there's people that aren't just around these cars all the time to be able to get see and experience this stuff? That's a really good question. And I, I think there are a number of owners that are sensitive to that and they, they, do put the cars at the museum, for example, so they can be seen or... I don't want to see it. I want to hear it. I yeah, they'll be at Cavalino. It. Yeah, you head to <laughs> Cavalino. There's, it's um, an event in January down in Palm Beach, Florida, where a number of the cars come out. Uh, Monterey, Pebble Beach, that's another opportunity to see the cars. Um, they may mainly to some degree. There are other events in Europe. It seems there's more driving events in Europe than here in the U.S. Uh, where the cars are out. And um, they're they're driven with enthusiasm, which is great to see. Yeah, Do you I, think that goes to the collectors and owners of the car in a different kind of mindset <laughs> as far as actually getting them out to be driven and enjoying them versus, you know, either keeping them for investment value or as their personal collection where they just don't move? Is that really, is it a different type of owner that does that? You know, it's all over the map. As I mentioned earlier, um, this friend of mine, he's become a client, great guy. He was out today in weather like we have here, exercising his 1954 Mondial Ferrari. I mean, and that... It's my um, kind of guy. Yeah, but you won't even take your car out in the winter. It's true. It's true. (laughs) The thing is, is I can't afford to fix anything if it runs on mine. Well, not to interrupt you, Kevin, but that was kind of my next point is, you know, Chris, you were saying how we don't see these cars out there. I think you have to remember, because they are so much more rare, you're dealing with levels of magnitude more valuable than our old 911s. Right. And even our 911s are, to every Joe Blow, quite valuable compared to an old Mustang or something else that's more plentiful. I was always told, though, by my grandpa, if you can't afford to, uh, if you, what did he say? I'll figure it out. If you can't um, afford to drive it, you can't afford to have it. Yeah, but he said if you can't afford to break it, don't build it. Oh, I that's gotcha. what it was. I mean, it's, it's if you can't afford to drive the car, don't own the car. And there's there's cars out there that I know that the owners shouldn't probably own that car because it's just <laughs> it's a financial burden at that point of taking care of something so important, right? You're just you're weighed down by mm-hmm. it. And maybe those are the type of the people that aren't driving the cars. I don't know, but it would be how amazing would it be to see at the Daytona that we were at four or five old Ferraris there at an event like that. It's just, it would just be really, really special. And this is something, obviously, I understand why they're not. I agree. It's, I under, completely understand. But from my <laughs> selfish perspective, I want to see them all the time. You know, well, I just want to see them. And the, uh, the celebration tour of the touring Ferraris, that's exactly what you're looking for. And that's what we did in Italy with those cars. We uh, had the cars congregate at the touring factory in Arese, Italy, just uh, outside of Milan. 
And uh, then we drove, proceeded to drive the cars. We were fortunate enough to have a police motorcycle escort. So all the roundabouts were clear and all the lights were green. So we were able to go wow. right to where we wanted to be. And that saved the clutches and the cars overheating and so <laughs> forth. And it gave the people of Italy what you wanted to see. They could hear the cars. They could see the cars in motion. And it's totally different compared to static. You're absolutely right there. Yeah. Um, and we drove um, through the north of Italy for five days. And we, we purposely were off the autostradas as a rule just um, for the well-being of the cars, the enjoyment. We were on roads that were just beautifully tailored for these short wheelbase cars. They're 88 inches, and we could just go up into the switchbacks in the foothills, like up into Biella and so forth. And it was just marvelous. It was so much fun with those cars. And hardly anybody else was on the road. And we were going through <laughs> villages, and we weren't were, uh, respectful. I'm just imagining some woman that looks like Sophia Loren with a, uh, with a big bin <clears> of tomatoes, <throat> seeing all these cars going by and just dropping the bin of tomatoes in just amazement. <laughs> that's the vision if I have in my head in the, in the, in the Alps or something. Just that That's, that's well, what I see. One of the funniest <laughs> memories, now that you bring that up, is we were crossing Lake Laga Maggiore, and that was via ferry boats. We're waiting for the ferry boat to show up, and here's a dozen or more old vintage racing Ferraris just sitting there waiting for the ferry boat. And it was an immediate car show for the people that were in the town. Waiting, yeah. and people waiting for the ferry boat, people just, oh, my goodness, look at this. And to your point, and then it was funny, onto the ferry boat and just the novelty of it all. And then we got to the other side of the lake, and off we go, and... I'm sure those people would rather see that than the president of Italy driving by in a motorcade. I mean, that's that's royalty for them, like we discussed. Oh, earlier. it's so visceral. Yeah. So you talk about taking the car to Milli Miglia, but you're also going, the car's also been at Pebble Beach and won. It won yeah. its class at Pebble Beach, right? Actually, it's been there twice. My father, who when I was in Paris at Retromobile, this restore, renowned restore, he said, your last name's Caulfield? And I said, yes. And he said, do you have a father by the name of Tom? And I said, Yes, and <laughs> he said he, you know, he drove that Ferrari all the way to Pebble Beach from Southern Wisconsin. I said, yeah, he got in and drove it himself. You're right. And he said, and I was really touched. He said, you know, what we called him there. We called him the Iron Man. Uh. It was like wow, because he was driving. This was remarkable. He was driving over ten hours a day through the desert, not on the interstate, but the two lane roads like you like, and. What was phenomenal is be, once the car was up to speed, it like he was cruising at 90, and the fuel mileage, he said, was around 18 miles per gallon. <laughs> and I was like, that's remarkable for a racing engine. And we were mm -hmm. messing around in Italy, and but kept track of that, uh, the fuel consumption. I was like, God, we're getting like 15 miles per gallon with a racing car. This is unheard of. And we're <laughs> double clutching, upshift, downshift, all that sort of going to 7,000 RPM, which was a big deal for an old racing engine. And... It was, it was exhilarating. It was really fun. So what do you have to do? What's the difference between getting a car ready for a race like the Milli Miglia versus getting it ready for something like Pebble Beach when you want to take home a trophy at Pebble Beach? What's the difference? It's there? two different studies. You, um, um, Pebble Beach is um, the drive there is the Tour de Elegance, which is 70 miles from um, the equestrian center down to Big Sur and back to Carmel by the Sea where um, – it's brilliant on Pebble Beach's part. All the 200 entrants line up uh, on Ocean Drive, and it's accessible to the public so they can see the cars. Meanwhile, the participants are up in the park having lunch, and the cars are on display for probably a good two-plus hours. So that, you're looking at everything is 
There's no scratches in the plexiglass windows. The cars are fresh out of restoration. They're still, for the most part, need to be sorted. Um, as sorted, I mean, like, oh, um, yeah, the carburation, all that's correct, but like the ride or the brakes, things that aren't going to be noticed during the judging. However, um, the details, like, um, does the horn work? Do the wipers work? Do all the lights work? Do the stoplights work? So are you, when they're, the judges are at your car on the lawn there, are you kind of like rocking back and forth? Like, oh my God, I hope the blinkers work. Like that kind of stuff. Oh like, yeah. Does the <laughs> clock work? And then you have, I think it's 20 minutes if the clock isn't working to magically bring it about. And that's the one time when the clock doesn't work <laughs> is when the judges are there. So there's a lot of pressure and it's very prestigious. Wayne Obrey, the founder of Motion Products, he once said to me, Kevin, if your car wins your class at Pebble Beach, at the Ferrari class, the value immediately jumps by a million dollars. That wow. was eight years ago. And I was like, wow, okay, that's good. So in answer to your question, though, that's part of what goes on with the preparation. But it was really funny when my dad drove out there, the novelty of this, um, Lauren Tryon and Jules Hoyman, the co-chairs of the event, they wound up awarding him the co-chairman's trophy because typically at that point there was no tour to Elegance. These cars, they traveled maybe 100 yards off the trailer mm -hmm. onto their spot on the lawn. And the Americans were getting such heat from the Europeans for that sort of stuff that it was like, okay, we have to do something different here. And it's the Tour de Elegance. It's one of the high points. It's really, really fun. Gets the cars out. And again, to see the, the cars in motion, the dynamic aspect is really fun. And the way that people line the roads, US1, to watch all this going on, it's really fun for all parties concerned, whether you're in the car or you're one of the spectators. Everybody's into it and having a blast. So do you think this kind of thing is on the rise on the decline right now you know just car week and and pebble beach and these old cars is it where are we at in terms of you know the popularity of this thing not oh, just for collectors but for just the general populace oh, i think the general populace i think um i think to some degree we're maybe taking a little bit of a breather reassessing you can feel it at goodwood at the revival um the cars that are showing up there and so forth um the increase in value definitely has an impact as to what's going on I was talking with a man named Ron Maiden in charge of the Formula One Master Series, and they're having to reconstruct a lot of these Grand Prix cars and sports racers. Otherwise, you don't have the cars on the grid. So we're going through a bit of a sea change there, if you will. Um, so why are events like this important, like the Goodwood Revival and Pebble Beach? Why are they important? Why it's important is it gets these cars out and brings cars back to life, such as the Lancia D50 Ferrari that we would never see. It, we'd read about it in the book, to your point, and see photographs, but we'd never hear these. We'd never see them in motion. And when you get, to, as you were saying, Chris, to see them in motion, and you know, it's in the sound, it just gets you going. There's nothing quite like it. So what's the difference? A lot of the audience here is we got a lot of Porsche people, mm -hmm. like a lot of Porsche guys, because mm -hmm. that's kind of my shtick, of course. Um, <laughs> what's cars. The, yeah, that's right. So what's the biggest difference between collecting Ferraris and collecting Porsches? Well, I think, again, you come back to the numbers. There's fewer than 600 racing Ferraris. And, like, all of a sudden, it's like, and this is between 47 and 72. We're not talking about the 333 SPs or the Ferrari Challenge cars. And um, and the cars the, that are the Ferrari racing cars that are out there right now, like racing at Le Mans and so forth, those are going to have significance. And you can see that with the... Um, the Porsche cars as well, and the men that drive and women that drive those cars now, they want to get a hold of those cars and keep those cars. The people that race them, 
so that down the road, who knows how it's going to play out. But they is that what's kind of happened with some of the like the eighties and nineties Ferraris because all that other stuff is just absolutely wild. You know, there was a for a period of time there, there was you could get a Testarossa for sixty five thousand dollars, and now they're <clears throat> well over a hundred thousand dollars now for a decent Testarossa. Is that uh? Is that tide coming up on those as a result of all the other stuff just being unobtainium for most people? Well, um, it's, it's like two different markets. You have the the rare racing collector Ferraris, and the, and the by rare also the the um, one off GT cars like the the Princess Lillian Durethe car, the King Leopold car. Pebble Beach in twenty twenty will have a special class for Pin and Farina about it Ferraris. Mm-hmm. one-off, such as uh, the three-posty or the GTB prototype, the Superfast, too. Great cars, really right spectacular. right back while I Google all the names <laughs> of these cars. Sorry, I'm I sorry. didn't mean to <laughs> overburden you with that. <clears throat> but here are these unique pieces. And, um, again, there's so few of the cars. Uh, I think um, I, I'm not that knowledgeable about the Porsche oil to speak intelligently to it, but you have the cars like the racing Porsche, such as um, the 917s that, and what's attributed to them. The 908s that preceded the 917s, the 906 Carreras, mm-hmm. the 904s, um, the RSK's, 60s, the 550s, and the different variants of those. And those are really a big deal. And they're looked after and and prized. And, of course, there's the 911R. That's right. really a big deal. So what, when you look at... There's 20 of those? Do we look at the way that Germans were just doing race cars in the late 50s, 60s, and in the 70s. What, what was their... What's the biggest mentality difference, do you think, between Porsche engineers and Ferrari engineers at that time? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, um, like Porsche was using air-cooled. Ferrari was using water-cooled. Ferrari is using V12, so they get their power from being able to rev the engine. Um, I think maybe Porsche was building cars for people to actually maybe drive. Maybe it was like uh, road cars first, race cars right. second. Where that's Ferrari probably. was race cars first, road cars second. You're absolutely I mean, right, like, Chris. Yeah, I the, think that's... The, that couldn't have been said better. The uh, Ferrari cars, the racing technology morphed into the GT cars. That's why you buy a Ferrari Lusso and you sent, you have the driveline of a 250 GTO or a 250 Testarossa for that matter. There's a few refinements like the GTO and the uh, TR have five speeds forward as opposed to four, but short wheelbase Berlinetta, highly I th- desirable. I think it was Kip. Remember Kip who was on the podcast a long time ago? He's a yeah. metal shaper and does restoration. <clears throat> he, you know, hand forms metal, all this different stuff. He's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked, he was going around and visiting different masters yeah. and all yeah. the different people trying to learn from their craft. And the Italians were the only one that didn't want to share any of their secrets. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's something uh, to be said. Maybe there. that's part of it. So, um, what makes uh, uh, wh- what do you think is going on with the classic car market today? You know, just in general, as you look at it from a bird's eye view, what's going on? Oh, I think there's a lot of good things going on. I think for some people, the, the longest. Fear was, oh, this is generational. It's all going to go away. Right. And that's not the case at all. We have a client. They have three generations. And this man's granddaughter, I think she's 24. And she said, granddad, I'll see, you at Pe- I'll see you at Pebble. And it's like, oh, and he was thrilled about that. But it was like, okay, they're in. We have some other clients where their children, their um, late teens, 20s, early 30s. And like, oh, yeah, really into this. And what was especially fascinating was at Amelia Island earlier this year, the auctions, one of the auction companies had a large brass car collection. And um, they all sold at the high end of the pre-auction estimates or beyond. And the typical buyer was somewhere around 40. 
And that connection was something you alluded to earlier, Chris, and that was I could actually work on this myself. Mm-hmm. There's a connection with their grandparents. And it was like this, this is different. It's not antiseptic. It's so I, there's a in terms of your question, what's the future? I think it's really good. I think short term people are taking a breather right now. Uh, we've had the longest run, successful run of an economy ever. Typically, the economy has a seven-year cycle. Mm-hmm. And so 208 to 215, well, we're going to 20, and our economy is still ranging along. So people are just wondering what's going to happen. I don't. This not an economy podcast, so I don't want to speculate <laughs> on that. Uh, so what? Um, are there any cars made today that you see as future classics? Something that um, the guy who owns Motion Products, Sun Sun, is going to be restoring in 60 years. Anything. Is there any cars that are made today by a major manufacturer, not some guy in his basement or something? You know, there's a million <laughs> different hypercars and stuff like that. But is there any like anything notable to you? You know, I think um, you, you look for cars that have lower production numbers because the rarity creates the exclusivity and thus the desirability. And um, I think um, Bugatti just announced they're going to be building a car where there's only, what I think it's 15 or 20 examples. So there'll be a certain exclusivity to get into that club. Um, but you look at, it, look at it in terms of uh, the, the, a different tier. Like obviously the, the Bugattis will of course always be worth money. It's a Bugatti, it's art, right? It's, it's a masterpiece usually. Mm-hmm. Um, some things are good. <laughs> Some things have been questionable over the years, but generally, usually. But look at something like a GTI, like a Volkswagen GTI. When you look mm-hmm. at that car now, you know, if, ten years ago that car was five hundred dollars, and I bought fifteen of them. Now they're selling for twenty to thirty thousand dollars. Is that remarkable? It's crazy. So, are there any cars that are, you know, fifteen, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars, that? moving the needle for you is like a golf R's. You think that's going to be worth any money? I'm just one. My point is what I guess what I'm trying to say is, are there any cars that are, that move people enough that they're going to be desirable again in 50 or 60 years? Cause you look at so many of them, it's almost like you have to, if you buy the car and you want it to be collectible someday, you might as well buy the factory tool to diagnose it and put it in the trunk <laughs> and like mothball it all at once because it's not like your dad digging that car out and talking to a mechanic and be like, hey, help me rebuild this engine. Let's talk about this together. It's just everything's like these fault finding missions when you go to fix a car now. It just doesn't grab me, but I don't know. Does it grab others? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think uh, from an aesthetic standpoint, there's some cars out there right now that you look at and go, for example, the Ford GT. It's like, wow, this latest one, that's really pretty cool. And then you have to ask yourself, do a little futurism. What um, what technology will, will we have available at that point where we could make a part for these? With, or, we'll just 3D print it. We'll just 3D print the part and cast a new one. There you I mean, go. That's uh, The was, only thing that scares me is the wiring the computers. Everything else <laughs> I think we'll be able to figure out. I think you could almost reverse engineer that stuff in the future. Well, that's going on right now. We've yeah. had... Um, some racing Ferraris come in and it was like oh, a Formula One car with an electrode automatic transmission. How do you, but we had an electrical engineer who figured all that out wow. brilliantly. We, uh, the funniest one though, we had these magnetic relay boxes. Those are the electronics mm-hmm. for the Ferrari cars. We had one of these very rare, they built three of these cars. This came in and the box was baked and we had to figure out what are we going to do? So we called the factory. They actually found the fellow at Magneti Morelli who designed the box. And we're like, <laughs> oh, we've got it now. And he was like, 
I can't remember how I did that. Like, oh, darn it. So wow. that we, was, to be honest, that was a big ask. Hey, this box that you designed like 70 years ago, <laughs> can you help me out here? What was really cool was the workaround, which um, Motion's noted for. Um, we wound up getting this fellow who, um, he designed the electronics for Oracle, the America's Cup boat that had the greatest sporting comeback in history. They were down like 10-1 to the New Zealanders. And they ran the board, won the America's Cup. Well, the electronics on those boats is pretty heavy duty. And this was child's play in comparison. So this guy said, oh, yeah, here, here's what we'll do. And when we were all said and done, we slipped it inside the Magnetary Morelli box and no voila. One, there wow. it goes. That, that's what, we, that's what the, the Porsche ones are off, notoriously awful, too. And yeah. people rebuild the guts of them. And then they, you put the, the case back up. You know, the case for it sits there. It looks original but it's got like MSD stuff in it or, or whatever the case may be. And that's, and I, that's I think, brilliant. Yeah, it's great. And I think what it all comes down to, and hope we can hopefully tie it off on this note, is if you have people that are passionate about something, there will be people that are going to want to fix it. And that is human nature of trying to keep things going if people are in love with something. Because love and passion as a human being is most important thing we have, regardless of what it is, whether it's a car or a musical instrument or whatever. And I think, or you're restoring a painting, you know, spending, oh. spending thousands of hours restoring <laughs> a painting. There's so many different things that this applies to. And I think cars is one of them. And as long as those people exist, and as long as we keep loving cars, there'll be people around to take care of them. Well said. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I really appreciate having you here and hopefully I'll be able to, See you around. It sounds like maybe we can hear some of those Ferraris yeah, you need in to, person. Yeah, you need to put me in your suitcase and take me with you. I think <laughs> is probably what we're going to have to do. We'll figure out something to get you guys out and about. All right. Sounds good. Thank Thanks you, again, man. Take care. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to uh, to Kevin for coming in and talking about that stuff. Yeah. You know, it's always interesting to hear other worlds in the car world that are out there. Right. You know, yeah, just, I certainly don't know anything about Ferraris or vintage Alfa Romeos. I'm going to have to write down the list of all the models of cars that he mentioned, too. So <laughs> just I can Google, to Google them, find out what they are. <laughs> like, I just I don't I don't know that world. Right. And, and I'm really or interested. This hill climb that's in Vermont that we had never heard of. Yeah. Top secret stuff. Yeah. I, mean, I need to get out there and hear some of these V12s. I really do. Yeah. Need to go wherever it is that these cars are and hear them. And I'll be going out to Le Mans Classic with with Kevin and, a, and another car to to document it and take some pictures and write a story. And you should come with, and we should okay. do a Le Mans Classic, and we'll do the podcast to. from Le Mans, which that would be, be awesome. Which would be awesome. All right, before we let you go, though, we have to mention Petrol Box. As I keep saying, the holidays are right around the corner, and I think this should be on your wish list. Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools. Detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, you name it, and they put it right there to your doorstep. There are actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic that costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Pet check them out at mypetrolbox.com. That's M-Y-P-E-T-R-O-L-B-O-X.com. And use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. All right, guys. We will see you. Uh, you're in Hawaii right now. I am currently drunk on Mai Tais on the beach. 
Well, not technically, but when people listen to this, you will be. Already. I said currently. Yeah, currently. You'll be gone. Um, I'm not sure what's going on when you get back. I haven't thought that far ahead. That seems like a really far That's place the in the future. Yeah. And uh, But whatever we do, it'll be awesome. And we'll see you guys then. Take care.